How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relation to God. Scripture teaches that the Christian life is a life of walking with God. It's a relationship that is ongoing, and we enjoy fellowship with God. It's an active concept, and yet when we disobey God, that rapport is broken. The only way to recover is to confess sin, and when we do, we are restored to that position of ongoing fellowship to be able to enjoy that relationship with God. So we always begin with a few uh, moments, few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for another great day to learn about you and to learn about your word, another great opportunity to study your word and to reflect upon how you have worked throughout history in terms of your grace and in terms of your power, how you have provided for those who are in need and how we come to learn again and again how it is uh, not by might, it's not by uh, power, but it is by your Spirit, and that it is through your Word and the Holy Spirit in this dispensation that we grow and mature as believers, and that your grace is sufficient for us, that, that that doesn't exclude our volition, but it strengthens and enables our volition that that despite whatever opposition, whatever difficulties we face in life, we know that the solution ultimately is always in you and in your Word. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to make this part of our life that you strengthen us uh, through our study of your word. And Father, tonight as we study, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged as we reflect upon your work in Hannah's life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tuesday night, so it must be Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, but I'm going to go through a wee bit of a review before we get into the beginning of Hannah's song. Some Bibles may call it a prayer, and it is in some sense. It's a praise, and but it is a psalm, which means it is a song and a song of prayer. Now, at the end last time, I was pointing out that as Hannah comes to the temple, finally, after uh, she after Samuel has been born, she waited approximately four years. We don't know how long that was. The scripture says until she weaned Samuel. And in that culture, that was usually around three, but could be as late as four and maybe even uh, maybe even a little later. And she was bringing him to uh, to Eli, who was the high priest, and that he would be uh, reared by Eli in the temple from that point forward. Uh, she made a vow because of her, uh, the fact that she was uh, barren because she was unable to have children. She had gone to the Lord in prayer. And this prayer, as we see, is a prayer that is the result of her long dependence upon God. This isn't something that all of a sudden she's tried five other things and now she's going to try God. That's what a lot of people do. But as we go through some of the things that she's already done in that we saw in this first chapter, she's not pursuing other options. She's not trying to solve her fertility problem by going to the fertility gods. She just takes one option, and she looks to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the God who can uh, uh, change her and cause her womb to open, and she will give birth to a son. And so she trusts in God. That's the source of her trust. She is trusting that God would provide her with a son, and so she made a vow, and that vow wasn't something that was just uh, spontaneous. It was something that she thought through. Now, part of the reason I say that is when we look at this psalm, of hers in the second chapter, we realize that this is a very well-structured psalm. 
She has thought this through. She has a an intimate understanding of God, and she has a close relationship with God. And so over the years, as she faced her problem, and that problem continued, like many of our problems continue, year after year, and it doesn't seem like anything happens. We pray to God, and it seems like it gets no further than the ceiling. And part of the reason God doesn't answer right away is to test us to see if we are going to uh, persevere and just continue to trust him, even if nothing changes. And so she continued her relationship with God, deepened and strengthened and became uh, more intimate. And so it's out of her understanding of how God works, out of her understanding of the word as it's made known to her in that dispensation that she comes and makes this particular vow. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is that this reveals the trust that she has in God. This child is God's child. God has given this child to her, and therefore she can entrust the child to God By loaning the child to God, that's the language that's used in the text, she loans the child to God by giving him to Eli. And there are some who have questioned her her mindset here, and is this woman really competent if she's going to give her child to be reared by this somewhat degenerate priest and his degenerate family? And she's not giving the child to Eli. She's giving the child that God has given her. She's loaning that child back to God, and she can trust God to take care of him and to provide for him. And so after he has reached this age of probably four or so, uh, the family came to the uh, tabernacle in Shiloh, And they had this great celebration. This is a peace offering that they are bringing before God. And in verse 24, I corrected the translation last week. It wasn't three bulls, but a bull uh, that was three years old. And this gives great evidence of the family's wealth, the family's generosity. If you look back in Leviticus, there are different offerings uh, that are allowed for different for people in different economic circumstances so that if you are a person of means and you have property and you have animals, then you would bring a bull. If you don't have quite so much, then you might bring a sheep or a goat. If you don't have quite that much, then you might uh, bring a uh, a bird as an offering, but uh, it was dependent upon your economic circumstances. And this shows that Elkanah, and uh, family are somewhat uh, well-to-do, and so they brought a bull or uh, they could bring a heifer as a sacrifice. So they have a banquet along with this, and they eat of the food, and they celebrate what God has done in answering her uh, her prayer. And so she then brought the child to Eli, verse 25, reminds him who she is because four years has gone by and Eli might not remember. And she's making that point because when she had come to the to the tabernacle, uh, Eli had looked at her and she was praying and her lips were moving and thought she was drunk and said so. And she said, no, I'm a woman who is extremely sad and distressed because I haven't uh, had a child and I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. And Eli then answered her, and this gives us an insight into Eli. I'm I'm going back, and I want to add a couple of things, because what we see about Eli mostly is negative, but this shows that there were still things that were positive about Eli. He says to her back in verse uh, 17, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. So he has an understanding that God is going to answer her prayer. That's sort of an insight For Eli, and this is a woman who has come and prayed and brought sacrifices and everything, and in the corrupt relativistic culture of that day, having a woman come and do what what Hannah has done is is rare. She's also she's made a vow, and now she comes back, and it's probably even more rare in that culture like ours that she fulfills her vow to God. She made a deal. And now she is, has the integrity to fulfill the deal, 
and to bring her child to God. So she, she reminds him who she is. And I would suggest that when we look forward into chapter, the last part of chapter two and into chapter three, that this provides some sort of uh, light to Eli. Something positive has happened in the midst of a pretty dark ministry. And even though he's not the guy who is the most squared away spiritually, God seems to be doing something around him, and that would, to some degree, uh, encourage him. So now we come to the response that Hannah has had in all of this, and I would suggest that what she has done over this period of three or four years is to take the time to reflect upon just what God has done this remarkable miracle that God has provided in her life where he has regenerated or opened her womb so that she could give birth and that he has made that possible and provided her with a wonderful son and she has been given the insight somehow into what God is going to do through Samuel because as we look at the at the prayer, at this psalm, in the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it is not only a psalm of praise and a victory psalm, that God has had victory, he's triumphed over his enemies, but it has a messianic uh, element to it. Because when we come to the end of verse 10, we read, He will give strength to his king. There's no king in Israel yet. Saul hasn't been anointed king. Where does she get this idea of a king? Well, it's mentioned back in Deuteronomy that there would be a king. And he, she prays, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And the word there for anointed is Mashiach in the Hebrew, Messiah, as it comes across in English, or Christ, coming from the Greek word Christos, so that is parallel, in synonymous parallelism to the word king. So the king here is, is understood to be the Messiah. Now that's remarkable because there's not been any prophecy quite yet that really connects Mashiach to king. And that is clearly going to be seen when we get into Psalm 2. We were in Psalm 2 uh, recently, I think, in um, in. Thursday night class in, in First Peter. So Hannah understands a dimension to what has happened, that this event in her life isn't just that God has done something remarkable in her life, but that what God has done that's so remarkable in her life has a broader impact on the life, and it will have a broader impact on the life of the nation. But beyond that, this is going to have a tremendous impact on human history. That, that she is, has given birth to this son that is going to be instrumental in the eventual rise of the Messiah and God's, God's provision of salvation for all people. So we need to understand that, that this is a psalm that goes far beyond just the, the individual event that takes place right there in Hannah, in Hannah's life. Now this psalm is a is a victory psalm. It is a psalm that expresses her triumph in her battle. But beyond that, she she puts this into the context of God's battle against God's enemies. I want you to notice in verse one at the in the last two two lines, she, it says. Uh, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, there are some problems with the translation there in that third uh, uh, third line in the, the four, four lines of the poetry there. It shouldn't be translated, smile at my enemies, but the key word I want you to notice is enemies. This isn't, she's not just talking about Penina because Penina would be her enemy, singular. She's talking about enemies and she couches this in salvation language, I rejoice in your salvation, your your deliverance, obviously deliverance in her case, but it has seems to have a a broader uh, implication. So what happens here is that she composes this hymn. She stops, she meditates, reflects upon her situation, her circumstances, and what God has done, 
and through the uh, guidance and direction of God the Holy Spirit, she has insight into seeing how this uh, has a much, much uh, broader impact. So she expresses this psalm. There's a prophetic element in the psalm, and she expresses her joy and gratitude, and she just she, she's so enthusiastic and excited about how God has delivered her that she can barely contain her emotion. This is a strong hymn of praise to God and expressing her joy for what God has done in giving her a son. And as she reflects on this, she understands that this has not only delivered her from her enemy in the home, Penina, but will deliver Israel from her enemies, the Philistines, and ultimately will lead to the deliverance of the nation from sin and the redemption of the world from sin through the victory of the Messianic king. So it is a psalm that expresses victory and triumph. Now, what we ought to do when we look at this psalm is to think about this in light of other such psalms. Psalms come in categories. There's, Depending on who you read and how you want to classify things, there's about five or six different kinds of psalms. Some psalms are what, is, what are classified as individual lament psalms. And this is when an individual is facing a problem, facing uh, antagonism from certain enemies, facing problems with their own sin, whatever it may be, and they're crying out to God for deliverance from this enemy. And in the course of looking at that psalm, you see this movement that takes place. Usually at the beginning, there's the statement of the problem, the expression of the lament, then there's a shift that takes place as they begin to think about their problem in light of God's character. And that's always a good pattern to follow. You have a problem in life, then start off by thinking through the essence box, thinking through the characteristics of God, thinking about it in terms of God's sovereignty. If God is sovereign, how does that impact the problem you face? If God is omniscient, do you think God is surprised by your problem? You think you're the first person to have that problem. Do you think that maybe God made a provision to solve that problem from eternity past? That's part of his sovereignty. He's the creator God, and he has authority over all his creation. He knows everything that happens in in the creation, and he can solve it through his omnipotence. He is all-powerful, and he is all-present. So he is fully aware of everything that's going on in our lives. So we just think it through. We think about the fact that God is righteous, and we think about our problems, our difficulties, in terms of the righteousness of God, and the term righteousness of God expresses his standards, his ultimate standard for how things should be dealt with, that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things, and a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, So a right thing has to be done in the right way, and that is ultimately trusting in God that he is the one that provides victory in the battle. And so uh, we think about God's love, that he loves us, and he loves us in such a way that if he provided salvation through his only begotten or unique son, then if he did that much for us, how much more will he do for us to deal with the petty little problems that plague us on a day-to-day basis, even the ones that may not be quite so petty and may be pretty difficult? We know that God is the one who can handle those circumstances, and he's given us the tools that we can use to face and overcome any problem, any difficulty uh, that we face in life. And so we can go to the Psalms and we read through the lament Psalms. There's individual laments and there's communal laments. And then at the end of those lament Psalms, there's always this statement of praise. As as the psalmist moves through the identification of the problem, focusing upon God, then you see his mental attitude shift in the middle of the psalm to where as he focuses on God, he realizes God can uh, give him victory over the psalm. And then there's usually at the end a declaration of praise to God that in some way he is going to extol God 
uh, tell people about what God has done, and that's praise. Praise isn't saying praise God. Praise is telling people with some specificity what God has done in delivering us from a problem, a difficulty, a challenge, something something of that nature. Now, there are some psalms where you come along and you just sort of take out that last element, that element of where you're declaring praise for God, and you build a whole psalm or hymn around that. And that's called a declarative, or some people use the term descriptive, praise, where you're identifying what it is that God has done. And in some ways, that's what this is. It's a declaration of what God has done for Hannah and setting that within a broader context so that people can learn and be encouraged from how God has intervened in her life. Now, one thing I want to point out as we look at this is that this is a victory song, as are many of the uh, praise psalms. They are victory psalms. They are songs of triumph. Sometimes they were sung in battle. Sometimes they were sung after a battle. Sometimes they were composed after a battle, such as Miriam's uh, song in, uh, in Exodus after God had delivered them through the Red Sea. Miriam wrote a hymn uh, praising God for his for his deliverance. And so when we think this through, we need to recognize that we are uh, in a battle, that life is in a battle. It's part of a broader war that began in eternity past. And whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're still part of this battle. This battle is cosmic in its dimensions. And it began in eternity past when God created the angels and the highest of those angels led a revolt against God. We, so sometimes we refer to this as spiritual warfare. Sometimes we refer to it as the angelic rebellion. Sometimes we refer to it as the angelic conflict. But this is the overriding uh, battle or war that takes place in history. And we know that when Satan... Uh, Satan disobeyed God, rebelled against God, lifted up his banner against God, that he wanted to be worshipped as God, that God gave him leeway, and eventually then God lowered the boom, and by that time Satan had deceived approximately a third of the angels and led them in rebellion against God as well. And so God convened a trial. This is uh, can be inferred from several passages of Scripture, and he declared that Satan and those angels that followed him were guilty and that they would be punished in an everlasting fiery torment called the lake of fire. And God created the lake of fire. And according to Matthew twenty-five forty-one, it was created for the devil and his angels, those that had followed him. But they weren't put there. For some reason, somehow God delayed that. And so as we study Scripture... It has come to be uh, accepted by numerous theologians and Bible scholars that for some reason God delayed this and it was related to what was going on with Satan and his angels. And somehow Satan must have raised some objection, like uh, smarmy lawyers sometimes do, uh, raised an objection to what God did. And they, he, they, he didn't like what God did, and somehow God... Uh, he impugned God's uh, penalty and is uh, challenging him on the basis that his penalty wasn't really just, wasn't really fair, that it really didn't fit the crime, and that God couldn't really be a loving God if he was going to impose those kinds of consequences upon him, that, that this kind of punishment wouldn't be consistent with a God of love and a God of grace. So the focal point then becomes the character, uh, the character of God. And God's response was, okay, we're going to have a little test case. Now, it might not have happened exactly like this, but this is generally the scenario that we're going to have a little object lesson, and I'm going to take this planet that I had originally given to you, and we're going to overhaul the planet, and I'm going to put a new creature on that planet that they're going to be a man and a woman, and they're going to be united in a unique way that hasn't characterized the angels, and they are going to be my emissaries that rule over the planet, 
and we're going to see if they're going to follow me and obey me, and there's going to be one test case, which is going to be a tree, and they're going to be told not to eat from it or they'll die, and if they eat from it, then they'll die, and we'll reap the consequences for their actions. And that's exactly what happened. God put Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam disobeyed God, and as a result, he died spiritually. Eve died, Eve died spiritually. And because of that, they were separated from God. Satan thought he had won this little challenge, but only to discover that, nope, this was just the beginning. And so God told Satan that now that he had usurped the power over the planet, God was going to create this situation of hostility between the followers of Satan and the descendants of the woman and that this would permeate the coming generations in history. A state of war would exist, a physical state of war that reflected this spiritual conflict between Satan and his angels and God. And so all descendants of Adam are in this battle. They're all born in darkness. They're all born in unrighteousness. They're all born spiritually dead. And the issues in the battle go back to the issues of righteousness and life and light and whether or not human beings are going to choose to follow God or choose to stay in darkness and follow Satan. This means every single human being, every one of us is born into this conflict. We're born into Satan's kingdom of darkness, and the only way to escape it is through faith alone in Christ alone. And only by trusting in Christ do we get to change sides. Now, the focal point in that conflict is the cross, because it's at the cross that God is going to solve the problem that was created with Adam's sin. And so there's a battle throughout the Old Testament that goes from Adam to his following succeeding generations, and they don't follow God. And it gets worse and worse and worse until God's comment is that evil uh, permeated the human race and the thoughts of man's heart was evil continuously. And at the same time, Satan is penetrating the human race, seeking to destroy the genetic purity of the human race because he knows that from God's promise, the seed of the woman must be the deliverer. So if he can pervert and if he can destroy the purity of the seed, the, the human genome, the DNA sequence of humanity, then he can win. So at the last minute, God says, okay, we're going to stop this foolishness, and I'm going to wipe out the human race, and we're going to start over. And he killed every human being through the flood, started over with a man named Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives. So they got on a tremendous ship that we call the Ark, and they floated around the planet for a year before they got off the boat and a whole new world. And so God started over. This is now plan C. Plan A was the original creation. Plan B was the fall after Adam's sin. Plan C is the earth after, after Noah. And they screwed it up again. And so the human race, instead of scattering like God said, they unite against God at the Tower of Babel. And so God came down, confused their languages, scattered them on the planet uh, by force, by scattering their their uh, language, and he has to go to plan D, which is working through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, working through the Jewish people. And again, Satan seeks to oppose God, and so he is going to continuously assault the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, because he knows that the seed of the woman now is going to come through the line of Abraham. And so he is going to assault Israel. So eventually we know the whole story about how they go down to Egypt in order to survive this famine. And in Egypt, they eventually become slaves. Then God has to rescue them, brings them out and brings them to the land that he had originally given them, uh, given Abraham and the land that he had promised them. And so throughout this period from the Exodus to the time of Jesus, there's this continuous assault on Israel. And they fail time and time and time and time again. And the period in Samuel is one of those failures, and yet we see God in his grace interceding to give victory in that stage of the battle in order to prepare for the coming of the seed of the woman who's going to come through 
uh, David the king, and it's going to be Samuel, the the son of Hannah, who will anoint David to be king, and it is through the, the Davidic line and through David that they'll be delivered from the Philistines, and then through the Davidic line that the that the Messiah will will come. So we see how this battle has gone on all the way down through history. The battle rages uh, today, just as it did at that time. But all through this, we see God is faithful to his promise. He's going to rescue people from their sin. He never backs off. He never changes. He gives people the freedom to sin and to fail and to really mess up their lives. But ultimately, God is always offering grace, always offering a solution uh, to that problem. Now, today we live in the most intense stage of the angelic conflict, the church age. But in the Old Testament, we see a, a lot of, of uh, a lot of stories, a lot of patterns, a lot of principles that still apply in the church age. And in the Old Testament, we see that in this psalm, Hannah recognizes that her microscopic battle, the, the, the problem that she has with Penina, who's always ridiculing her because she can't have a baby and always making fun of her because uh, she's not able to fulfill her womanhood and all of these things that that Hannah realizes her victory in her own little area, but that eventually this is going to have a broader implication. And she realizes, as she expresses in this first verse, that her enemies are God's enemies and that God's enemies are her enemies. And this idea that our enemies are God's enemies permeates the scripture, the thinking of mature believers. Let me show you an example from Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Let me... Here we go. In Psalm 139, 20, For they speak against you wickedly, this David writes, Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them? See, the psalmist is saying, Lord, I hate your enemies like you hate your enemies. And that's how we should be. We hate God's enemies as God hates them. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. We have to recognize that even though we're in a different stage of the angelic conflict, we're still in the a same kind of a battle. And that we should look to these Psalms in the Old Testament to understand how they relate to victory. Let me give you a couple to look at. Psalm 3, Psalm 8, Psalm 9, 3, 8, and 9, Psalm 18, Psalm 92, Psalm 105, and Psalm 107. There are many more. That's just a few that I looked up, and I didn't want to go through and do all your work for you. I encourage you to read through the Psalms and try to identify psalms that are psalms of declarative praise, where God is, uh, where someone is declaring God's victory over God's enemies. And what happens is we see this expressed, for example, in Psalm 107.1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I don't know if any of you remember a little chorus we sang in Sunday school when we were kids. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, say so. You never knew what the end was because it was all the words were just that one verse. That's a problem with some choruses. You never get very far. And the point in this psalm is you, we are to talk about how God has rescued us and delivered us and gives substance to that statement describing how God has has uh, rescued us and how God has delivered us. Now, before I get any further, I want to give you a little bit of an outline of what is going on in this particular psalm. As you notice, there is a sort of a, a, a pattern to what we see Hannah saying. She starts off talking about the unique sovereignty of God in, in verses uh, 1 and 2. My heart rejoices in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. She's emphasizing 
the uniqueness of God's sovereignty and his ability to solve her problems. Then she talks about the reversal of human fortunes, how life changes and how life is bad. And she says, talk no more so arrogantly. Twice she says this. In fact, in the New King James reads, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. The same word is used both times in the Hebrew. That's one of my little pet peeves about translators is that when God uses the same word twice in the same context, we shouldn't translate it with different English words. That may make good style in your English composition class, but it's not good translation style because you lose the point that God is is making there. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken, those who stumble are girded for, for strength. It's talking about how uh, mighty men are incapable of providing a solution. Ultimately, the might of man can't do it. God is going to turn things back against them. And then there's a repetition of God's sovereignty in verses 6 and 7. Then it comes back in verse 8 and talks about how God intervenes. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set among princes. Uh, and make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Who wrote that book? Anybody know? We'll find out. Uh, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. So it's talking about how God's sovereignty changes what happens in life. Can there be change? Yes, there can. Who has to do it? God has to do it. And then talks he, in verse uh, second part of verse 8, and following talks about God's sovereignty again down through verse 10. And then it closes with this unique statement at the last part of 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. That's a new idea. It, ultimately, all of this culminates in the victory of the, of the messianic king. So this sets up a stage for understanding something about this kind of a psalm. And what I want you to do is come to understand how to read things like this a little more intelligently. That's one of the reasons that last year I taught the Bible study methods class is just so folks could read their Bible a little more knowledgeably, give them a few tools so that you can understand what to look up, how to look things up, and how to follow along uh, at a little uh, more uh, informed level when you're reading through the scriptures so that as you read through the Psalms, you can take these incredible uh, statements that are made and see how they apply uh, apply to your own life. Now, just as a side note, I want to talk a little bit about uh, one form of application from the Psalms, and that's singing. Sometimes Christians have uh, Christians have all kinds of wrong views about singing. There are some Christians who say, why do we sing? Let's just get to the heart of the whole thing, which is the Bible study. Why, why do we sing? That's just a distraction. But what we see in Scripture is that singing is an integral part of worship. In fact, if you go to Ephesians 5.18, where we have a command we all uh, know very well, which is to be filled by means of the Spirit, there are several things that are listed in Ephesians 1, 19, 20, 21, 22 that are a result of a person who is being filled by the Spirit. And the first thing that is mentioned is he that he is singing hymns and songs of praise to God, and making hymns and songs, uh, making melody in your heart to the Lord. It is talking about singing praise to God, that that is one of the first consequences of a person who is walking by the Spirit and is walking with the Lord. So singing isn't something that is just secondary in our spiritual life. It is something that God thinks is very important. In fact, the largest book in the whole Bible is the book of Psalms, which is a collection of hymns. So for some reason, God seems to think singing is important. The other extreme we get is that people who don't really understand much about singing want to trivialize singing. And this happens, and it's happened down through the ages in different stages in different civilizations, and we really see it today, and it shouldn't be a surprise. We live in a culture that trivializes everything. Just watch TV. Everything becomes a cliche, and it gets watered down, and it loses its depth and its significance. 
Singing to God is something that is to be taken very seriously, not only in terms of the words that we sing, but also in terms of the kind of music that fits with those words. And uh, right now, I just want to talk a little bit about the words, because with the Psalms, we don't have the music preserved, but we do have the words of the songs that, that we should sing. And so... I just want to make a few little observations here to remind you of why we sing things the way we do here at West Houston Bible Church. First of all, the Psalms were written to be sung. They weren't written necessarily to be picked apart and exegeted word by word, which we do. Now, we do that because in many cases, many ways, there's problems with translation on the one hand, but we don't know how to really understand these words. And so we have to go through the process of translation and analysis in order to fully understand what is being said so that we can appreciate the artistry that goes into these songs and that we can make the thoughts that are expressed there part of our own spiritual life. So what we have here in terms of these lyrics are the hymns that are sung to God. And I believe, and have believed for uh, many, many years, that these hymns in the Bible, give uh, they're inspired by God the Holy Spirit, so that makes them a cut above anything else. I don't believe like the Puritans that only these psalms should be sung, but I do believe that 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 good music that is sung in church that is now I think there's a difference between what you sing around the campfire at a camp, what kids sing at times and things like that. But when you're singing as part of the corporate worship service of of the church, that this should reflect. A, a level uh, of devotion and honor to God that is a cut above anything else. It is usually preparatory to the study of God's Word, so the music should enhance mental activity and cerebral activity and intellection and, and, the, and strengthen the ability to concentrate and not be something that distracts from our ability to focus and to study and to to think it should the the purpose of music and the hymns wasn't to put people into another mental state so that they just felt like they were worshiping it wasn't manipulative it was the response to what god had done in life so the psalms as just pure lyrics should provide us with a precedent for evaluating the kinds of hymns that we sing to god a second thing that we should remember is that the singing of praise to God in Scripture is in some passages described as prophecy. How about that? That's the kind of thing that ought to cause us to scratch our heads a little bit because we don't associate singing with prophecy. We think, well, prophecy is when a prophet comes along and he talks about judgment or something that's going to happen in the future. But look at what the Scripture says. Here's a classic passage here in First Chronicles 25, 2, and 3. And it's talking about the sons of Asaph. And this is in the section of Chronicles. It's giving part of the genealogy. Now, who was Asaph? Asaph was a, a priest who was in charge of the worship, the, the music of the choir singing in the temple. And Asaph wrote a number of psalms. So these are the sons of Asaph. Apparently the family was quite known for their musical ability, and they were all involved in uh, the choir that was under the direction of Asaph. And we read about Asaph then that he prophesied according to the order of the king. Now if we just stopped there and we didn't have the next verse, then we might think that what he is doing is that he is somehow... Uh, involved in expressing the word of God to the king. But notice it's, it's at the will of the king. It's according to the order of the king. Now, prophecy comes by God, not by the will of man. So that seems kind of odd. So maybe it's not talking about prophecy as we normally think about it. In verse 3, we read about another uh, priest who's involved in the singing and the worship uh, the songs of worship in the temple, Jedithan, and the sons of Jedithan are Gedaliah, Zerai, Yeshaya, uh, Shimei, 
uh, Hashabiah and Mattathiah. And they were under the direction of their father who prophesied with a harp. Now, that's usually not what you think of when you're thinking about Daniel and his visions. And you're, you're probably not talking about, you know, thinking about him playing his tuba while he's given a prophecy or play, playing the cymbals or whatever the instruments were they had at that time. That's not coming into your mind. When you think of Isaiah appearing before the throne of God and bowing before the throne of God and writing his prophecies, you're not thinking about musical instruments. But here's a clear passage. It says that he prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Now, those categories, thanks and praise, are key categories of the Psalms. There's thanksgiving Psalms and there's declarative praise Psalms. Those are two categories of Psalms. And you sing them and they were accompanied with various musical instruments, but a harp was one of them. Who else played a harp? David. What did David do? He wrote a lot of the Psalms, and we're going to study those as we go through First and Second Samuel when they fit within the right place. So the point that I am making is that one element of prophecy was really just praise to God. It had to do with the music, uh, the worship of music in the um, in the worship of, of Israel. Now, another thing we should remember is that in the Old Testament, there's a reference to certain women as prophets. Miriam is mentioned as a prophet, Miriam, the sister of Moses. Uh, Deborah is married as a prophet, yet most of the writing prophets and the speaking prophets that we study are men, and there's an emphasis in male leadership. Uh, throughout the scripture and so we kind of scratch our heads and some people who have a feminist agenda come along and say well see you have Deborah you've got Miriam in the Old Testament you've got Philip and his daughters or prophet uh, uh, prophetesses in the New Testament see they were communicating the word of God let me suggest that there is the pattern that we see with Miriam and with Deborah and with Hannah is that what they are doing is writing psalms. They're inspired by God, obviously, by God the Holy Spirit, in the writing of the psalms, the songs that they sung, and the composition of them. But what they are doing is related to singing. It's not related to foretelling the future or talking about things related to eschatology. So even the song of Hannah in the midst of it reflects about something that is yet in the future, the coming of the Messianic king. So prophecy is related to this. And we'll see this again when we get into the life of Saul. What is one of the most enigmatic things that happens to Saul right at the beginning after he's anointed? He comes across some of the prophets and Saul begins prophesying with the other prophets. That just confuses a lot of people who want to cram their preconceived notion of prophecy as something like preaching into that scenario. What we have here, I believe, is that that Saul joins them as they are singing hymns of praise to God, and he just joins the choir. That's what's going on there. So this idea of prophecy as music and singing with thanks and praise to God is clearly attested uh, in the Scripture. So psalms are part of worship, a critical part. Now, worship is composed of different things. We worship at the Lord's table. The Old Testament, they worship through sacrifices. You worship through singing. You worship through giving. You worship through teaching and the Word. We live in an in environment today where worship has been misused and applied in many contexts to where it relates only to singing. And that's not true. That And so the song leader is called the worship leader. The worship leader in a church is the pastor. The man who leads the music, the choir director, the song leader, whatever else you want to call him, but he's not the worship leader. Worship is uh, the overall service is organized and structured by the pastor, and he's the one who ta- is taking people through uh, singing, giving the Lord's table the sermon to focus their attention upon God so that their life is lived to honor God. That's ultimately what what worship is in, individually. Now, as we look at Psalms and as we look at this psalm, 
There's a couple of things that we should think about when we talk about singing and singing praise to God and the pattern that we see from this psalm as well as others in terms of how it relates to hymns. First of all, there's a quality to the poetry. When you take any hymn that we sing, throw away the music, take the words, put the words in the form of a poem, and read the poem. Just read the lyrics as poetry. Is it good poetry? Is it C-minus poetry, or is it B-plus poetry? And, and a lot of the words in contemporary choruses, and trust me, in some traditional hymns, is really poor poetry. It, it doesn't really honor God. We should be bringing our very best. We're to do all things to the glory of God, Scripture says. God is deserving of the very highest quality that we can bring him. That means that we should not have trivialized or cliched poems that form the lyrics of our songs. That doesn't mean that it can't be simple. They're simple and cliche are not the same. They can be simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Simple. It's not cliche. Okay? It's not trivialized. So the words don't have to be complex to be qualitative. They can be simple. So we want quality, the, 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 just the lyrics, the words, the poetry. Strip out the music, just look at the words as poetry, and we, we ought to be able to tell something. Now, the problem that we have is there's a lot of folks who don't really have the ability to tell the difference between good poetry and bad poetry. Okay, we're not going to ask for any testimony, show of hands, whoever, you know, bombed out of all your literature classes going through school, that's, that's not the point. But those of us who may not be quite as tuned in to what makes good poetry good poetry, and a limerick, while it's fun, is not really good poetry, uh, we need to depend upon those who do have an ability to spot a good poem from a bad poem. And let those folks help us to have good poetry in our singing. And that applies to music as well. There are a lot of us who have a fair to midland ability in music. I was in the band. I played piano. I have a fair to midland ability in music. But I certainly don't stack up against a lot of people. I am an amateur, an amateur's amateur, okay? But when we're going to take music, we need to listen to people who really have a capacity to understand quality music. And, and that's why I have five or six people who have a lot of education and background in music who I go to, and when somebody recommends a hymn, and this has happened many times, uh, where, and, and they'll come back and they'll slam the poetry or they'll kill the music. And But there's still taste there. It's interesting that, that some things will get out there, and of the five or six people, three will like the music and the poetry, and two won't. Or usually it's like four to one. But there may be one person who's a hold down. They say, this is just, this is just so trivial. This, we should never sing this. And the other four say it's okay. And I think, okay, that's probably pretty good. That's where taste is somewhat entered into the, to the game. But usually it's not like that. Uh, I remember four or five years ago, Charlie Clough and I were at a conference, and we were singing some contemporary hymns. Now, notice what I said. I didn't say contemporary choruses. I don't like contemporary choruses. They're not Bible choruses. But this is a contemporary hymn. There are several people who are trying to write, to, who live today, so they're contemporary, and they're trying to write quality hymns. And and they they weren't bad. So I got the got got some YouTube videos or website links and sent that back to everybody and said, take a look at this. And everybody came back and said. No, that's not good music, and it's not good poetry. Okay? See, I am not the final arbiter of what good poetry and good music is, despite some people who think that I'm the one who makes all these decisions. I listen to people who are experts in the field and who know the difference between mediocre poetry and good poetry and mediocre music and good music. I want us to sing good music with good words. 
certainly there's a lot of stuff out there that is good, and we should sing it. It's great stuff. We may or may not know about a lot of it. So why should we sing stuff that is mediocre? We shouldn't. So we want to look at quality. Second thing we look at is what's the focus of the poetry. The focus of the poetry should be upon God. The content should be theocentric, focusing on God. Look at what we have here in this song. Read through this. The focus is on God. The hero is God. The focus is on the God who who answers prayer, the God who is a unique God. There's no rock uh, like our God. And it's very little about me. My, if you look at the first verse, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, is, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. That's the last that you hear of me and I. But if you look at a lot of contemporary choruses, it's all about me and how Jesus made me feel and how my problems are so overwhelming. It's all about me, 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 me. And it's not about God, 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 God. It's not theocentric, it's man-centered. And so we need to make sure that the content is man-centered. And Now, trust me, there's some old hymns that are me-centered too, okay? Some of the revival stuff that came out in the 19th century is just as subjective and, and uh, as some of the uh, bad stuff today. And we need to look at the content. Uh, we need to recognize that a praise or descriptive song, descriptive praise psalm describes what God has done in delivering his people. It's got some content to talk about. And if you listen to a lot of hymns that we sing, we talk, they talk about who God is. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What great language comes right out of the scripture. You read through that hymn and you come to learn about the person of God. You are drawn closer to who he is. There's a, uh, a majesty to, to the words. Uh, we look at uh, how God has answered prayer in some hymns. We look at what Jesus Christ did on the cross in some hymns. Uh, they teach us something. They, they reinforce what we learn from our study of the word, and they express it back to God in terms that are are quite majestic. And the music doesn't drive the hymn. The music complements uh, what the hymn sa- says. So in conclusion, we, we say that hymns that we sing should be descriptive of who God is, of what he has done, his work of salvation. They should focus upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and our anticipation of his future glories. And that's what we'll see as we come to this particular hymn. It elevates our consciousness as to what God has done. So I encourage you over the next week or so, read through this a few times, make some notes, notice some things that are there. Use some of those things that I taught you in uh, Bible study methods. Uh, Look for words that are repeated uh, words that are distinct. And what you'll find is that there are certain words and phrases and even verses that show up again in later hymns. And, uh, for example, Psalm 113 borrows language from Hannah's psalm. There are uh, Psalm 18. Uh, David's, uh, a psalm of David borrows language from this hymn. In, in for Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, we have a hymn of David that borrows heavily from this hymn. Now, this hymn occurs where? At the beginning of First Samuel. David's hymn of praise occurs where? At the end of Second Samuel. They're like bookends. And what's the focal point of both of those psalms? That God is our rock. He is the one who gives us uh, deliverance from our problems, and he is the source of our salvation. So if that's stated in a hymn in 1 Samuel 2, and it's restated in a hymn and, and at 2 Samuel 22 at the end, you think that might tell us something about what we're going to learn in our study of Samuel that the focus is on God as our rock who is the source of our salvation. It, it's, it, it, it's amazing how that just happens like that. It just showed up, and there it was. 
But this is how God the Holy Spirit works. So we need to think a little more deeply as we read. And and all of that can be done just reading in the English, but we'll find out some really fun things and interesting things as we get into this. So we'll come back next time, and we'll start here with and start at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, as we work our way through this remarkable uh, praise hymn from Hannah. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things in your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded that you are our rock, just as you were the rock of Moses, the rock of Hannah, the rock of David. And there is, as David says, there is no rock like our rock. There's no God like our God. You are holy. You are distinct and unique. And you and you alone can give us victory over the problems, the challenges, and the difficulties of life. And only in you do we have real hope and real strength. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us to trust exclusively in you as we face the challenges of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.